she knew immediately just by the tone of my voice and the things that I say because she's engaged in the process. She knew that I'd had a run that was different or one that had landed differently with her. And she already went through some of the things she does, you know, to make that better. The best thing in the world was she did not demand that I relive it over and over again. Los Angeles, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service, discussing firefighting strategy, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again for another edition of Code 3. This is the show that gives firefighters the information you need in about 20 minutes. But today it'll be a little longer than that, so let's get started. It's not easy to be married to a firefighter. Whether you're the wife or the husband of one, you know it can be tough to deal with emotionally. And if you're thinking of marrying a firefighter, you need to understand that there's more to it than that one-hour orientation class the department offers you. A lot more. That's why Mike and Ann Galliano wrote a book and frequently speak around the country about how they've made their marriage work for 35 years. Mike retired as a captain with Seattle Fire after 30 years of experience in the fire service. He's written a bunch of articles for fire service magazines and websites. He's also a co-author of the book, Air Management for the Fire Service. Anne is his co-author of their book, Challenges of the Firefighter Marriage. And Mike and Anne Galliano join me now to talk about what they've learned over the years. Welcome to Code 3. Hey, hey. Good, good, good to be on, Scott. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining me. And I'll start with you, but Mike, you can jump in anytime you want. How is being married to a firefighter different than being married to, say, an electrician? <laughs> well, that is the question. We've been married 35 years now, and... For most of that time, Mike was a, he was Seattle fire 28 years, military fire four years, and then he was a corrections officer for a year. So that whole time we've been in the first responder marriage. And I noticed when Mike became captain in Seattle, as he was getting reacquainted as the training captain with firefighters he hadn't seen in a while, I noticed as he was connecting that a lot of them were divorced or getting divorced. And that that kind of concerned us. In fact, it was quite uh, depressing and sad because these are great people and, and noticed that this was happening to a lot of firefighter marriages over the years. And so I really brainstormed at that time that we'd been married over 20 years by that point when he became captain. And I just really started to think down over our 20-year experience at that point of the things I'd noticed of living with a firefighter and what was it about the job that made it so different? And, and the things that I came up with, the two major differences between, you know, fire and the rest of the world is exposure to danger and trauma. And danger has 
physical repercussions and trauma has emotional repercussions that were really, I noticed him bringing that stuff home. And so that's kind of where it started was um, noticing that there definitely is a difference and the impacts of danger and trauma on my firefighter and, and how that impacted me. So that's kind of the difference right there is, is the two extreme exposures of danger and trauma, which are the two most impactful experiences that a human being can go through. And our firefighters go through that all the time. And so that's, that's where I started, if, if that kind of answers the question a little bit. It does. So, Mike, how hard is it not to bring the job home with you? Well, I think it varies, Scott. Did we, you know, our, as you know full well, our firehouses are full of a wide array of characters and personalities, and everybody, I think, brings a different level of what they experience at work home. But I think it's safe to say that every single firefighter who goes into a firehouse, gets on fire trucks, goes to runs, sees people in terrible situations. You know, people call us because they're having the worst day of their lives, and we're exposed to that continuously. So there is, there is no way in the world that you're going to put on a badge and be on a fire truck and not bring a little bit of it home. Uh, some of you are going to bring more just because of how you're wired, the way your emotions are, the type of personality you have. The most important thing is, however much of it you're bringing home, the most important part is that you're aware of it. And the person who's going to be able to tell you very clearly how much stuff you're bringing home and how it's landing when you get home is your spouse. And 100% of what we're trying to do is open up communication lines to the point where that dialogue is going on. And if it becomes too much, your spouse is the first one in the correct way to let you know that you're bringing too much of it home. It's impacting the relationship. It's impacting family life. We feel like that's the best chance we have, however you're wired, to making it not be really bad on the home life and on the, on the marriage. So you try not to bring too much of it home. Is there a limit in your marriage of how much you want to be able to tell Anne? Yeah, you bet. And, and I'll let Anne speak to this because she has been such a good sounding board for me, and I think she can describe it really well. But having that ability to be able to speak openly and honestly to each other without offending each other, you know, without on the on the firefighter's side, without, you know, saying things in such a way that it comes off as harsh or it comes off as you don't understand because you haven't been on a fire truck and those types of things which cause a fight. Or from the spouse's perspective, you know, the, the spouse not having the sensitivity to recognize that, you know, it isn't just, even though we love our jobs, it isn't just that we go to work and we hang out with people we like and we have a great time all day. The spouse has to recognize that we do go and we are exposed to things that any normal human being would be traumatized by. Um, so there does have to be a, a balance of, the, of what you bring home and the types of details you bring home. I know I, there, were, there have been times, Scott, where I have brought home some details to Anne or, or a level of emotion that I think were very negative for her and they were unnecessary. And it's, it's in having that conversation with her that I really found out where the line was and what was the right amount to bring home and not. And she can probably describe that better than I can. Well, let me ask you this, Anne. Did you at some point have to say to Mike, you know, that's a bit too much. We got to stop. Yeah, it's hard to put it into a simple line or lines being drawn because what, what I wrote about in my book and in my columns 
was derived over years of exposure and years of conversations. And, and what I did to kind of narrow it down a little bit for the, for the future generations is I like to remind the spouse, remember, they're exposed to danger, exposed to trauma. And add to that, most firefighters are sleep deprived as well. And those three things can make your firefighter pretty tough to communicate with at times. And so I, I developed what I call um, five essential conversations based on danger, trauma, and sleep deprivation. So five essential conversations derived from years of Mike and I dealing with this stuff. And um, they deal with the different aspects. Like one of the, one of the primary conversations, and I call it reentry time, and that's when my firefighter would first come home at that reentry time at the door, because that's where we typically had our most, I guess you'd say, fights or angst was him coming home from being up all night and tired and whatever, and then me waiting for him at the door and then pouncing on him and expecting this big conversation when he just wasn't in the mood for that or ready for that. So then we'd I'd be offended and he'd be tired. And, and next thing you know, we're, we're mad at each other for his entire time off. And so what like reentry time is, is we discussed on, well, what works when you come in that door? What, what helps you transition from the firehouse to home? And, and reentry time was the answer. It was kind of just giving him a break, you know, a, a little bit of a break when he comes home, knowing that he's tired, knowing he's up all night to kind of shift gears a little bit, like um, just maybe a nap or, you know, just time to sit quietly uh, and not be questioned by me about everything. And then later in the day, um, when he's had a little bit of a break, then we would really connect and talk and he would give me what I needed, which was, you know, just a really nice chat on reconnecting and how you doing. And um, so that's one of the conversations and, and I call that re-entry time. And that helped us to avoid a lot of awkward transitions because my world was very mellow. His world was very intense and re-entry time is, is helping us. Uh, that's a tool to help you transition back together without fighting. Well, Mike, what is your ideal re-entry time? What does it look like? I mean, what does she literally say or not say? For example, do you do you want to hear how was your shift? So, great question. And I want to make sure before I answer, I want everybody listening to know, there is no cookie cutter here. There's no one size fits all and everybody can do the same thing because we all have different lives. We have different schedules, different, you know, responsibilities at home. Some families, the spouse doesn't work. Some families, the spouse works. Some have kids. Some have, you know, a hundred kids. I mean, there's all kinds of different configurations. Here's the important thing, Scott, and then, I'll, and then I'll specifically answer your question. What you have to figure out is what works for you, because if you don't, there's going to be real problems. You can't avoid it. You cannot just ignore it. If you're continually coming home and crashing into each other at the door and not getting some type of system worked out to where you segue from the rock and roll world of your work environment to the hopefully peace and quiet of your home environment, it's always going to be a crash or a conflict. So for me, in the way our household was structured, it was actually pretty easy for Anne to be able to, instead of meeting me at the door and saying, how was your shift? What did you do? Here's what I did with the kids. Here's the things that need to get fixed today. 
Oh, were you up all night? All things that I did not want to hear when I walked through the door. I had, you know, a long 24-hour shift or 48 hours, whatever I worked. It was an hour commute home. I always arrived home tired. Almost every shift I was tired. The best thing in the world for me was be greeted however however we greeted, whether it was at the door or however it was. Um, you're doing okay? Yeah, I'm doing good. And then just to have a little bit of a break. Let me get out of the car, get my stuff out of the car, get a cup of coffee, transition into being home, say hi to the kids. And after about, for me, 10, 15, 20 minutes, sometimes more, sometimes less, sometimes you couldn't do it at all. But for the most part, I was allowed to have a little bit of a gap, a little bit of a breather to shift my mind into, okay, I'm home, and now I can transition into the day and do all the things that we do when we're not at the firehouse. For most times, Scott, that's what it took for me. Everybody's going to be different. You know, some some people need a longer time. Some people, they don't need hardly any time at all. But you want to have the conversation so you're at least being honest with with each other about what you need. And here's one other thing, Scott, that I would say to your listener. If it's good for the firefighter, it's also good for their spouse. Everything we talk about is reciprocal. So for those of you spouses that work, when you're able to give your firefighter this transition time, it's also reasonable for you to expect when you come home from the bank or teaching elementary school or doing whatever it is that you do, it's reasonable for them to give you a transition time back into the house and not just throw the kids in your lap or what have you. All right. And how long did it take you to learn this? The reentry time? <laughs> yeah. How how long did you did you guys bump heads before you finally figured <laughs> out, wait a minute, there's a better way to do this? Boy, it, it took a while. And to be honest, some days I got it. Some days I would mess up. You know, it's never a one one time fix. But I would say the the first time I really noticed it being an issue was way back when Mike was a probationary firefighter and, and it was new to us both. And he was, cause we were married before he became a Seattle firefighter. And I remember him coming home and uh, the boys were just toddlers, but we were going to go get a, a Christmas tree that day. And he staggered in the door and, and I said, let's jump in the car. We're going, you know, I mean, the kids are waiting and he was, and he was just, exhausted and said, really, do we have to do that today? And I said, oh yeah, let's go. And that was like my first big mistake because that whole day he just was tired and kind of grouchy and it just, it wasn't the best tree experience. And so that was kind of the first time I realized there's something different about him now than there was before. And, and it took a while to figure out that, Hey, give them a chance to decompress and don't just drag them out the door or, or let the plans change maybe depending on how tired he is. It would have been better to just do it the next day. It, it took a long time and I slowly figured out that the less I pounced on him, the better he was for me later in the day. And, and again, that's derived from many years of experience, but that's why it's a conversation because Everybody needs a, something a little different. Like Kevin Shea, a famous New York firefighter and a buddy of ours, he said he would just go hang out in his garage for about a half hour before he'd come in the house. And his wife would say, what are you doing out there? You know, she never knew what he was doing, but all she knew was that by the time he came in, he was better because he had that time to himself to decompress. And, and another buddy of ours um, listens to really calm music in the car instead of like political talk radio on the way home, which agitated, you know, something mellow, 
find what works for you, firefighter, to help you relax, shift gears, maybe stay a little longer at the firehouse and actually get a good workout in before they go home so that their their mind is in a better place. You know, those are just some ideas. Some some people go out and just hang out with if they have horse they have horses and they go hang with the horses a little bit before they come in the house and that helps them decompress. You know, whatever it is that calms you down so that you're you're at your very best by the time you walk through the door. Uh, and then spouse, again, remember what your firefighter is dealing with. And it's not a regular desk job. This is an extreme job and have just a little bit of extra grace, you know, when they come through that door. So I'll aim this at both of you and neither one can answer. Can you tell me about an especially difficult time you've had and how you dealt with it? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll start that and I'll let Mike finish it. That was another aspect. Um, it's another conversation too. It's um, is handling, how do we handle the tough runs? Um, firefighters see difficult things all the time, you know, tra- traumatic runs and all kinds of things all the time. And most of the runs don't really get to you because you're professional and you know what, you know, you know what you're dealing with and it's not personal and you're able to be emotionally detached. But every now and then um, a firefighter and my firefighter has experienced a run that got to him and it was emotional and personal and, and it traumatized him. And I, I noticed him bringing home um, an extra level of agitation. And um, so a couple, this has happened more than once, but what I learned in those instances is we learned two things. Mike used to not tell me when he had the tough run. We call it, we call them tough runs, but that just means it was extra horrible. He wouldn't tell me because he, he didn't want to, I guess you'd say traumatize me and tell me the horrible stuff. So it was a protective instinct to keep that from me. But the problem is the most common reaction to trauma is anger or irritation. And so I was seeing this anger and this irritation and not really knowing where it was coming from. So I would respond with anger. And the next thing you know, we're in a fight. So then he learned to kind of tell me, okay, yeah, I had the tough run. Then I had to learn how to respond to that. And my instinct would be to question him about it and ask him about what happened, what's going on and, and why was it so horrible and how do you feel and all these things. And that, that isn't what he wanted. He actually just wanted to kind of be left alone about it because it takes time to process trauma and put it into words. So those were some of the mistakes that we made over the years. And, and I learned again to let him come to me and put it into words when he was ready to not ask a bunch of questions about it, to let him talk maybe to the other firefighters about it instead of me and not be offended by that to get typical healing thing is just lots of affection, you know, just give him that lots of affection, not a lot of questions. And those are some of the things that help, but I'll let Mike tell you like why why one of his runs was so particularly tough. All right, Mike, you're up. Yeah, well, as as most of the people that are going to be listening to your program will know, you just never know which run's going to get to you or or which of a series of runs or, you know, what type. Um, not everything, even though a, a lot of what we see is horrific, because we, we do train really hard and we, we have good camaraderie, so 
we're able to absorb most of it, but there's going to be ones that are going to come along that are, for whatever reason, they're just going to get to you. And I had one, one in particular that was, a, you know, to be candid, it was a run I've seen a bunch of different times. But because it was close to my kid's house, it was an auto accident. And the two kids that got killed in the car, they were just sitting at a stoplight coming home from work. And they got rear-ended by another driver who had killed somebody else in a previous car accident. They got rear-ended at about sitting at a, sitting at a traffic light at about 70, 80, 90 miles an hour. The car was driven two, 300 feet down the road and burst into flames. And the kids died in that car. The only thing we could tell when we pulled up to the vehicle, it was already decided. It wasn't a complex run. It was already over by the time we got there, really. All we could tell was that it was a male and female in the car, and we could tell that they were probably young adults, either really late teenagers or more than likely younger adults, 20s, 30s, something like that. I've seen that run, Scott. I've been to that run a lot. It's lots of people in cars and, and car crashes and car fires and those types of things. But about 10 minutes into the run, I realized I was only about five or six blocks away from where my then 20-year-old, 25-year-old son and daughter-in-law lived. They had just moved about five blocks from where that accident happened. And because the car was smashed up and burned up, and all I could tell was that it was a male and female about the size of my son and daughter-in-law, I had no clue in that moment when I realized where I was in the city, I had no clue whether or not that was my son. And man, tunnel vision, my vision locked in on the, on the two bodies. I was scrambling for my phone, trying to get to my phone to call my son. And when he answered the phone, you know how, how that must have felt. It's just the weight of the world was lifted off my shoulder. I, I felt like dropping to my knees. Just such a, an ebb of relief came over me. And, and I got him off the phone, got my head back together, and then got back to running this, this incident and making sure everything would go well. But I think because uh, of the just wondering there for a moment, whether it was my son and also knowing that somewhere later on in that day, there were going to be two sets of parents that were going to be getting a phone call and they were not going to have a good conversation on the phone because their kids were killed at this event. That's one in the images and the sights and smells and everything about that. It hung with me, and to this day, I, I can look at it better now that I'm distant from it. You know, I'm a, I'm a good seven, eight years distant from it now, but on occasion, that one will pop up in the back of my memory bank, and you'll just kind of jet right back to there, like, you know, like, it, like it's happening all over again. And I think a lot of our members struggle with that type of stuff. Now, Anne was marvelous during this. The, the great thing was because she is committed to knowing what to do and reading my body language, she knew immediately just by the tone of my voice and the things that I say, because she's engaged in the process, she knew that I'd had a run that was different or one that had landed differently with me. And she already went through some of the things she does to try to, you know, to make that better. The best thing in the world was she did not demand that I relive it over and over again. Tell me how you feel. Tell me what you're feeling. That's what she needs. That is not what I need. I did not need to go through it and articulate it or put voice to it. Just what I needed was just the care and the touch and the comfort of somebody who loves me and let me process it. Let me grieve it. And then there came a time, as I got a little distant from it, there came a time when I did want to talk about it a little bit more. And then, you know, we, we did have some conversations about 
what went on and why it was a big deal. And, you know, and that's where you get to do all the cool stuff. The spouse gets to say, well, you know, you gave them the best shot that they had of surviving that. And if there was any chance, you would have given it to them and on and on and on. So that's, you know, in the short time we have on your show, that's kind of the shorter answer to that. All right, let's look at the big picture. Is it possible for couples in your position to be prepared for these unique circumstances when they get married? Well, I'm I'm hoping that things like our, our book and, you know, resources like that that are out there, that it will start to be, that it will start to help couples be more prepared. We were not prepared. Nobody told us a thing way back when had no idea what we were in for. And I'm hoping that like your listeners and and company officers and whatnot will start to maybe look at some of these issues and realize that the danger and the trauma that our firefighters go through, these things do come home and they do impact marriage. And, And if you can just start to talk about it and be engaged in it, read some books about it. Another book that I recommend is a book called On Combat by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. Um, even though it's about combat, he does talk, he does say the stuff impacts police and firefighters as well. You know, tools that help you deal with trauma, life-threatening situations, and kind of prepare the spouse for what they're going to be facing sometimes. And if you just have some of these conversations on how can I help, what helps you, what doesn't help you, um, then slowly I think you you will become better prepared and, and better able to withstand some of the issues, you know, again, company officers need to realize the two most traumatic runs of all for all firefighters, most traumatic ones are anything involving a child and anything involving another firefighter, like another firefighter being killed. Those are the two most traumatic. So maybe have that in mind as an officer at the firehouse. If that happens, make sure you talk to your firefighters, debrief them a little bit. Uh, maybe warn the spouse, hey, we had a really bad child death today. Your your spouse is going to be a little more irritable. You know, those kinds of things I think will really help the spouse be in, aware of what's happening and, and to not respond uh, incorrectly. So I hope that helps a little bit. Yeah. Now, I notice you're saying spouse. Are you familiar with couples where the wife is the firefighter and the husband has a nine-to-five job, and how might that be different? Uh, We've been teaching our class for quite a while now, and again, because I'm I'm the non-firefighter, but I, I love to pick the brains of the female firefighters when we get done teaching our class, and and I love to ask them, you know, did this work for you? And they said, oh yeah, it, it's every, all of the things that we say, the conversations, they apply equally to both. The only thing that the female firefighters have said to me that's a little different, they tend to be more willing and more ready or more quickly ready to talk about the trauma than men typically are. And, and I think that's just because women are a little more in tune with their emotions than men are. Um, so that's the only difference that I've noticed is that women do like to talk a little more quickly than men do. But other than that, it's it's about the same. Yes, Scott, and I think this is really important, especially for the folks that are going to be looking to get the book and, and get into the conversation. Every marriage in some ways is different. 
I think what Anne did brilliantly with this book was she didn't try to make a cookie cutter book where if you just do every single thing A to Z that Mike and Anne did, you'll have a robust marriage of 35 years and enjoy each other, et cetera. Because we're wired the way we're wired and our experiences are what they are. And in our scenario, Anne was home, raised the kids, took care of the home, worked some from home. I went and was a firefighter. But there are a, a million different configurations in firefighter households, everywhere from, you know, volunteer firefighters where they teach school during the day and they just do volunteer firefighting at night and are called out in the middle of the night to go to runs all the way up to, we know, firefighter couples where both the husband and the spouse, the both parts of the union, the spouses, they both are firefighters in very busy firehouses and are going all the time and everything in between. The important thing is the, the book is written to be principle centered. So whatever your configuration is, however it's wired, the conversations and the things that are in the book are the things that you talk about with your situation in mind. And then you apply the principles to whatever your unique situation is for, you know, a couple of the dual income firefighters who have no kids, the challenges and the conversations go a little bit differently than for the single income firefighter with eight kids who's trying to make ends meet. There's a, there's a different dynamic going on. But the conversations about talking about the hard runs, about how do we deal with reentry time? What do we do to, to ensure that we keep our first family first? All these conversations need to be done in the context of what your dynamics are. I, one thing that's interesting from female firefighters' perspective, because some of my real good friends are female firefighters, one of the big challenges they faced with their spouse that I never did was the spouse at home was very worried about the fact that the female firefighter was going to a male-dominated workplace. And there was some insecurity there that, that, that she was constantly surrounded by these big, rough, tough firefighters. And in this one instance, the spouse on this end, the husband, uh, you know, he was a little computer guy <laughs> and was just kind of intimidated by that fact. Now, listen, I can't give you the answers for, for what to say, but that's the intersection where the conversation now has to happen because that's what's unique to that relationship. And to make that relationship work, given what you both do for a living, you have to come together loving each other and figure out a way to use the words that are going to work so that you're not always at odds. All right. The book is Challenges of the Firefighter Marriage. There is a link to order it in the show notes. And Mike and Ann Galliano, thanks for talking with me on Code 3 today. Scott, thank you, brother. Thank you for what you're doing, and we're honored to have spent time with you. Yes, it's just a real treat. Thank you for having us. This topic never used to be addressed. I'm glad that nowadays people are recognizing that left to fester, it can and does lead to divorce, but it doesn't have to. I'm interested to hear what tips you have for newlywed couples or even those who've been married for a while but maybe never addressed communication before. Just go to Code3Podcast.com slash marriage and leave your comment. Or email me, scott at Code3Podcast.com. I'll look forward to hearing from you. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. 
Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week with more. I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.